Hi everyone, welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, How to Get Employees to Stop Taking Unnecessary Risks, sponsored by DuPont. My name is Tom Music. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thank you for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council or Magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a Q&A session. To ask a question, type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of today's participants, we might not get to every question. However, any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button, which is located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I can let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Again, that will be safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today will be George D. Haber, Global Director of Instructional Systems at DuPont. George joined DuPont in August 2012 after working for 12 years as a university professor. In his current role, he consults with external and internal clients on, on aligning corporate strategies and goals with organizational development activities. Thank you to all of you for tuning in to this presentation. And George, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm George Haber. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the NSC for this opportunity. Um, I've really enjoyed working with you guys putting this together. Uh, before I start, I'll tell you a little bit more about myself. I hold a PhD in Workforce Education and Development from Penn State University. And um, I, I taught, as, as was mentioned earlier, for about 12 years in higher education between uh, Penn State University. And I finished my uh, higher ed career at Old Dominion University. Uh, my technical background is in construction. Uh, I'm trained as an electrician, uh, a home builder, and also uh, uh, a pretty good stint in elevator construction. So, um, you know, with, with these two areas of both safety and academia, as well as practical and technical sense, um, my team and I, I think, have put together a pretty good tool here that focuses on how to help employees to stop taking unnecessary risks uh, using what we call the risk factor journey. So, uh, what does the journey look like? Uh, I have lost my navigation controls. I push live view again. Uh, the, the button wasn't working. Okay, I got it back. So, um, so what does the journey look like? I'm really going to show it to you in these five steps or five objectives. Uh, the first thing is we're going to spend uh, you know a good amount of time talking about the human element in safety, and then we'll talk about what the risk factor is, um, why choose the risk factor, how to implement the risk factor, and the last thing we're going to talk about is we're going to look at the risk factor uh, in it in a case study of one of our, our larger consulting uh, clients. So uh, where do we start? Let's start with uh, the human element in safety. Uh, if you think about risk, 
the common element in safety and risk is the human element. You know, facilities, tools, equipment, and processes change. But, you know, at the heart is the human, and humans take risks. Therefore, we have to know why humans take, humans take risks. Because risk is all around us, and we are all risk takers. And that is why, and that is what is really new about um, safety. You know, I, I have lots of conversations with lots of people about safety and what is new. And if you really think about it, as far as technology, techniques, tools, and equipment, there's not a whole lot new. In fact, if you think about safety systems in and of themselves, they focus on processes, procedures, rules, and systems. These focus on or are built on the premise that cognitive and behavioral elements, otherwise the things that people have to know and perform connected with consequences, either positive or negative, for that uh, we just had a power surge. Are we still there? <laughs> the phone blanked out on me. I'm going yep, to continue. We can still hear you, George. We're all still there. Um, we, we've got some bad storms coming here through Virginia Beach, and uh, we did have a power surge there for a second. Um, nothing like a seamless and problem-free presentation. Um, so I was talking about cognitive and behavioral elements, and these are often what are focused on, especially in safety systems, right? But and many people believe that behavior-based safety systems focus on knowing what to do, making sure people are, it's communicated to people, and that we set up safe, safety systems to guide and reinforce those behaviors are all that's needed. But if you'll allow me to just challenge that for a minute, whether that's something you, you hold on to or not, but let's assume there might be more. it may not be so much about what we think and what goes on with us cognitively. But the bottom line is, is that rules, processes, behaviors, and safety systems were all that we needed. We probably wouldn't make irrational decisions, especially when we know better, right? How many times have you seen something happen where you work or experienced something and you just shook your head and say, what were they thinking? The bottom line is that we do make irrational decisions. Like, look at this guy. Do you think he's aware of laws or safety or, you know, his works um, guidelines and rules about, you know, talking on the phone or, or driving while distracted? So how do we accept and retain irrationality into our lives? Because I think if we all look, we all have an element of irrationality. The bottom line is that we are driven by built up by, and our decisions are often guided by our past experiences. The decisions we make, good or bad, are reinforced by outcomes. If you think about it, if you make a bad decision and you have a bad outcome, you're likely to not do it again. Whether that consequence is natural or artificial. And if you have a good consequence, meaning you save time, your boss patted you on the back for being so efficient or set or whatever, it's probably going to reinforce you to taking that decision again. So let's look at a decision a little bit deeper. So many of you on this call probably spent a lot of money and a lot of time on safety systems 
partly to remove the variable of what? Really poor decisions, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to control that variable. But systems, rules, etc., you think about it, they're put together by people sitting around conference tables, drinking ice water, uh, and they have all the time to think and consider all of the variables and possibilities of an action or a potential uh, potential emergency. You have all you have all the time to do it. So therefore, those rules, processes, and procedures usually are pretty sound, right? But these decisions and their outcomes—that's great. But can we manage risk out of all of the decisions that people make? that your family make, that your teams make. If we could, we would just need more rules and processes to be safe. We often, we, we have to realize that often things happen to us that those people sitting around the table haven't anticipated. That there's something goes a little wrong and we're going to have to rely on people to make their own decisions in real time under real circumstances. And since these decisions are outside of your predicted set of circumstances, we can conclude that we and the people who work for us routinely make risky decisions. And we know that these decisions are based upon not the rules you've developed, not those safety systems and processes, but by, I'm going to ask, does anybody remember? They're being made based upon experiences and circumstances. And we know that automatic and intuitive decision-making is based upon what Daniel Kamen calls the fast brain. Uh, I'll talk more about Daniel Kamen in a few minutes. And uh, It's funny because the first time I did this presentation, the most emails I got was asking me more about Daniel Kamen, but we'll come back to him. But he, Daniel Kamen calls it the fast brain. This is the brain that we use to make those quick decisions. Something happens right in front of us. Somebody cuts us off. Somebody says something to us. Something happens outside of our expected, um, the, the, something happens outside of the expected. Kamen talks about that the decisions made in that type of circumstance are heavily influenced by the feelings and emotions related to that time, that place, and that circumstance, often taken in purely by vision. But what we've learned is that feelings, oh man, the text is not, oh, that, that feelings definitely have an influence on that intuitive decision-making. So we can conclude now that there is a difference between how we might feel and how we might think about any given uh, situation or circumstance. Think about it. If I have time to slow down and think about this thing that's happening right in front of me, I might make a different decision. If I don't have any time, I'm going to make the decision based upon what I see, and make a very quick reference to my experiences within the context of the circumstance. And the bottom line is, whether we like it or not, this reasoning is going to lead to a decision 
and it's going to lead to an action, good or bad. And the bottom line is, and I think we can all come to an agreement on this, is that traditional safety practices cannot fully account for how people perceive, interpret, or respond to risk in real time and under real circumstances. So great. This, you know, what did you learn on the webinar? Well, this guy got on the phone and just told me that I got all sorts of problems I didn't even know I had. So where do we go with this? Well, let's, let's uh, play around a little bit with the latest research, right? So, you know, there's a lot of discussion around uh, today's pop science. In fact, you see some advertisement and apps, and they're all talking about neuroscience and the latest research around it. But to tell you the truth, I see a lot of this stuff, and it's actually rather affirming um, for some of the work that we've been doing with the risk factor. Some of the discussion around neuroscience and decision-making is around levels of consciousness with decision-making. You know, we have conscious, we have subconscious, and we even have pre-conscious states, which is very interesting, another topic for another seminar. I would say that if we were all sitting around uh, having a cup of coffee and having a discussion on this, we could probably all agree that decision-making, especially decision-making around risk, should be moved to the more conscious and executive decision-making parts of our brain, right? I mean, it'd be hard for anybody really to disagree with that. But is that all we need? Is that it? If we're fully conscious of our decisions, does that mean we're likely to make a better decision? Are we able to make a more rational decision at this conscious state? Or is there another dimension that we have to consider? Does the fact that we're operating in a fully conscious state eliminate poor decisions from our day? So I mentioned earlier a guy named Daniel Kamen. I'm going to go ahead and just animate all these on here. Now, Daniel Kamen wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. He actually won the Nobel Prize for the model. And he talks about the different ways decisions are being made in different circumstances. And one of the common variables in that difference has to do with the amount of time you have or the amount of time you take to make a decision. He talks about decisions in these really three different, no, so, oh, I'm sorry. I was on an airplane uh, back in October, and I, I picked up a, pic, uh, a copy of Harvard Business Review, and he found that he had actually written another article. It was called Noise. And he was talking about how noise, and I'll define that for you in a few minutes, how that impacts our decision making. So in the case of this article, Kamen is concerned about the accuracy of decision making, right? So when we look at these, we want accurate decisions. In the far left target there, we want them to be accurate and consistent, right? Now, so he starts looking at and discusses the causes of faulty reasoning and decision making. He classifies them this way. So first he talks about decisions that are based upon an established bias, right? We hear this term bias, right? So bias, as, as we look at this target, is a consistently poor decision. It's off target, right? A good example of this would be, you know, you probably have that road that you drive on the way home, and you know there's never a policeman there, right? So the speed limit's a little slower than you think. It's 35, you do 45, right? And the first time, you were probably kind of cautious about it. You're probably looking around. But eventually, it becomes part of your subconscious decision-making because 
you have formed a decision-making bias. And you are equating the fact that you've not had a negative consequence with the fact that it's a good decision. Okay, but it's not, right? You know roads are engineered, and people look at them, and what's a good speed, what's a safe speed to travel? But you've kind of pushed that aside, and you've created a biased decision, which is creating an, a consistently bad decision. Then we have the concept of noise, and I actually really like noise because I'm actually dealing with this right now. Noise is when you have too many variables relative to the decision that you are unable to factor quickly to make a good and accurate decision, right? And the best example I can give you about this is buying a car. How many times have you been in a car dealership and you're, you're kind of tempted, you're ready to go, but you say, well, let me go home and think about it. And then it's at home when you really kind of, oh, wait a minute, maybe this, maybe that, maybe this is a better decision, right? The bottom line is when you're sitting there in that car dealer's chair, all of the variables around that decision are too difficult for somebody who doesn't work in a car dealership, doesn't understand finance to that level, to comprehend. And therefore, you, you're going to make inaccurate decisions all over the place. I hope that makes sense, because I'm actually going through that right now. So what's the answer? What can we do? Well, we address these two errors of decision-making in, in what we call the, the risk factor. Uh, the risk factor is a, uh, what we like to call it a transformative event, because it's more than just a workshop. It's a series of workshops. And what it does is it takes people to a level where we really start to identify what are some of the biases that you as an individual have that lead to decisions in your life that are riskier than they should be. We'll look at that a little bit more in detail. And we train people on how to make fast brain decisions with greater accuracy and the ability to assess risk much more quickly. I'm going to take you through some of the, some of the steps. So the, the, the first, uh, as you see this, this is the risk factor for employees. It's four modules. Own it, choose it, change it. I'll show you the objectives to those briefly. The fourth one is lead it. I uh, lead, lead it off a little bit because usually we like lead it to come in two months later. So own it, choose it, change it, happen week after week, and then lead it two months later. Um, excuse me, uh, includes media exercises, uh, personal risk management workbook. If you ever go on YouTube and, and you, you Google DuPont Sustainable Solutions, you can see some of the videos we produce, very high quality videos here in our own studio. Um, we have another module called uh, Champion It, which is focused on the supervisors, right? So what we're going to be doing is giving individual workers a new way to look at risk, new way to make decisions. And we really have to show, you know, show the supervisors how to support and how to understand risk-based decision-making so that they can help uh, their, their workers make better decisions. So the first module, as I said, was own it. Very, very simple concepts here. We just really have two objectives. And, you know, it's funny because you have a lot of people, if you, if you ask them what levels of risk they think they're allowing in their lives every day, especially those who work in risky environments, Many of them think they're taking far fewer risks than they actually are. Through a number of interactive activities, learners work, learners, <laughs> participants learn that they are actually taking many more risks 
and that there really is never a safe space. You're always living with some level of risk. And the second, the second objective is to recognize that if only a small percentage of decisions, our decisions are risk-based, that we're putting ourselves in danger hundreds of times a day. We're going to talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. I'll just open a menu. The second module we have is choose it. And this is actually my favorite uh, module. Um, and this is where we really start to challenge people on the biases in their decision making. And how do we do that? We look at an epic disaster and the key principal decision makers leading to that disaster. And we walk our participants through what was the decision. Because it's easy now to point back and say, oh, man, I can't. You know, we all say, what were they thinking, right, which is a slide I showed earlier, right? But we look at the decision. We look at what the potential external drivers were for the decision. I wanted to save time. I wanted to be more productive. But then, through a number of exercises, we get down and we start saying, well, yeah, sure, that was a driver, but still irrational. Were there any feelings or emotions based upon this person's experience that may have influenced the decision one way or the other? Here are the three objectives. Recognize why we choose risks. Understand we often make decisions based on feelings and emotions rather than logic and reason. And the last part is to understand how emotion-related decisions are often made subconsciously. In fact, you know, I do this webinar and I occasionally talk about this one person. And I can usually get everyone to agree and nod their heads and say, I can see that this person's emotion and fear of an irrational circumstance probably pushed him to make that decision. It's a fun activity. And the way this, as I said, this module goes, we look at an epic disaster, then we look at a pretty common workplace incident. And again, it's easy to point fingers at everybody else, but the third part of this is to kind of turn it around and say, let's look at some of the risk-based decisions you've made in the past. What was the driver? Or when you something went bad, what was the reason you told somebody? And then we have people really start to look inside themselves, and what were the emotional drivers behind that? Now, uh, the third module is change it. Now, remember, we talked about bias, right? So the last module on choose it, we're really focusing on identifying the biases people have and mitigating them by showing the irrationality of those biases. Now, when we get to change it, change it is all about the noise, okay? It is about how do we look at risks, especially those risks that might happen right in front of us, and how do we quickly assess risk and make better and rational decisions? And we do that by acknowledging the role of conscious and deliberate actions in reducing personal risk, change the influence decisions in order to risk, reduce risk. And the last thing is to use our tool, which is pause, process, proceed, much more detail than that, of course. Uh, to reduce personal risk and the risks of others. Again, these are focused on that noise part, right? It's, it's a real complex model, right? So when we look at Cayman and we have the fast brain and the slow brain, which is probably going to make a more accurate decision? Well, usually that's the slow brain, right? We've also presented to you that there's a problem that many things happen to us where we have to make quick or fast brain decisions. 
This tool is meant to give you the speed of the fast brain with the accuracy of the slow brain. The last one is championing it. Again, this is a persuasive this is um this is about persuasive leadership for supervisors. And basically we apply the principles of own it, choose it, and change it to reduce risk through authentically engaging employees to persuade change. And we also want them to demonstrate how to use the risk factor tools to reduce risk. Now the um Champion is built upon a leadership model called the persuasion model. And we use the persuasion model and we practice the elements of, the, of persuasion, right? If you think about a supervisor's role, their role, at least a primary role, is to make people do stuff, right? Which really often requires persuasion. And it's often a level of leadership. And this module allows them how to take the day-to-day -day activities of being a supervisor and how to exercise persuasive leadership through their day-to-day -day activities. The last module is Lead It. Lead It is, has been built off of many of the concepts of Champion It and is built around the concept of peer-to-peer -peer leadership. These three modules these three objectives are to demonstrate the ability, again, to apply, own it, choose it, change it. Demonstrate the ability to authentically engage coworkers to persuade them to reduce risk. And you see that word persuade again. And then to develop an understanding of uh, authentic, persuasive, peer-to-peer -peer leadership to inform, inspire, and influence. And those are the three points of our persuasive leadership model, inform, your ability to communicate clearly, inspire, the ability to make the message important, valuable, and internalized to the person you're speaking to. And the last one is how to apply influence. And influence has its own model, too. And um, so the risk factor is this. The risk factor brings the participant to a level where their awareness of their own personal safety is raised through self-exploration and, and determining what is important and what is not important in their lives. The second part is about giving and practicing a personal risk assessment process to help make better decisions. I'm going to tell you a quick story, a personal story that happened to me a few months ago. Um, I have an 18-year-old son. I'm very proud of him, and he's trying to get into one of the service academies. He uh, has had to. We had to. Uh, I had to drive him to uh, an interview with a congressman because you need a you need a, a congressional nomination. And as we're driving, it's late one night. We're on Route 81 in Virginia. Uh, a car in front of us swerves to the left and then makes a real sharp turn to the right and drives headfirst into the embankment on the side of the road, it flips over a couple of times and it, 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 it rests sitting down, upside down. So my son and I, we, you know, I pull the car over to the right, uh, you know, in a safe but, you know, rapid manner. And I, I look at my son, I'm like, let's go. And so we ran back to the car. And the car is upside down, there's smoke everywhere. And um, 
there's about a half a dozen people standing around, and and so uh, you know I, I paused for a moment, which is our first step, and then I jumped right on it, and and I I reached into the car, I grabbed the guy, and I pulled him out to a safe place uh, where we had you know first aid, right, and waited for the police and all that, and the, the guy was okay, he was in shock, you know, he was he was uh, going in and out of consciousness, but you know the guy was okay. Now. Um, Later that evening, I was driving with my son, and my son was really starting to question himself. He said, Dad, I would have never done that. You know, how did you know? How did you know it was safe to go in there? And I started thinking about it, and I realized that I had actually used the risk factor. And it, it was so funny, because I've been living this for the last three years, because, you know, we developed it. And, uh, you know, the pause step, I did hesitate before I went in, but during that pause, I processed the risk very effectively. Uh, and, and, in fact, I can still see it in my mind's eye. In fact, that's our first step. The mind's eye, I took a second, and I looked at the car, and I said, you know, that guy's probably upside down in his seat, seatbelt in. I'm going to have to reach in there and figure out a way to unbuckle him so I can get him out. Fortunately, he already unbuckled himself, right? Or he wasn't buckled, and I don't know. But, um, but I did see that in my mind's eye. And our second step is to use what we call the total observation method. So I looked above, below, behind, and inside what I was going to do, and I smelled I touched, I, I smelled, I, and I, I listened, and I touched. So I remember looking at the car, and it was a late model Toyota. I, I know those are good cars, and they have strong unibodies and, and, and very strong chassis. So I, I felt very confident it wasn't going to, like, crush in on me. The other thing I remember distinctly was I, I told you there was smoke everywhere, but I remember smelling it, and I could tell it was coolant. I knew nothing was burning. It was just you know, the radiator hose or something like that, or the radiator itself had burst open and the coolant hit the hot engine block, and that was it. And the third thing I remember doing was looking over, seeing that a number of cars had stopped, which created a barrier. So the highway traffic was taking a wide course around me. So grabbed in, pulled the guy out. Now, I'm telling you the truth. I went through this analysis in a matter of five seconds. It, very quickly, just by using these steps. Now, the last step, as I said before, is proceed. And I'm going to tell you, proceeding into a hat, and here's the thing, right? If, I was, if it was my job to lower my personal risk, should I have done that? Should I have gone in there and tried to help the guy? No. And that was consideration too, right? We sometimes talk about uh, instinct, right? Preservation of self, preservation of species, right? And that was probably my initial inclination was to help this guy. But there's a point at which you have to consider your feelings, remember, within the circumstances, right? And if I had allowed my feelings to make those emotions and, you know, fear or apprehension or concern for myself, I might not have done it. But fortunately, I was able to use the risk analysis to look to basically mitigate my fear and to move forward with confidence. And we all know that a worker working around risk with confidence is much safer than somebody who comes in hesitantly. So I just wanted to, oh, man, this, um, I just wanted to bring that up. So there's an example of the use of what the risk factor gives you. Consideration of feelings and emotions in your decision making and a very good in real time tool for assessing risk. So, why choose the risk factor? Well, I've covered some of this, but let's, let's get a little more detail here. Um, there's, there's a uh, kind of an internet 
concept flowing out there. Nothing's been truly validated that we make up to 35,000 decisions a day, often uh, without even realizing it. And that has to do with those levels of consciousness and subconsciousness. So it's an interesting concept. I'm sure a few people are out there scratching their head. There's no way we make 35,000 decisions a day. So I decided to validate it. I looked at three sources, three activities of daily living. Speaking. We speak between 13 and 16,000 words a day. You could argue that each of those words is decided based upon a level of subconscious decision-making. Driving. The Department of Transportation and OSHA estimate that you make about 200 decisions per mile that you drive. If you drive 10 miles in a day, that's 2,000 decisions. Heck, we make close to 300 decisions a day just based on food and what we decide to eat and the way we eat. So if you take those three activities of daily living, I, I didn't keep count, but you're up near 21,000 decisions just doing those three things. 35,000 decisions is not really that far off of that. There was a study done by Stanford University about the number of decisions that people make uh, in a day. And they quantified making at a level of consciousness. Uh, it was a prison study, right? They wanted to say, look, about the average person makes about 1,000 conscious decisions a day whereas a prisoner makes about 200 decisions a day. But if you take that 1,000 decisions, it basically becomes a small amount because of all of the decisions that we're making subconsciously. I think the number is extremely valid. Now, if we look at that, those number, that volume of decision-making, and if we apply this, if only 1% one, one of those decisions are risky or based upon a decision about risk, Technically, you're putting yourself at risk or at danger 350 times a day or 21 decisions per hour awake or even one decision every three minutes. But that's not – actually, that's pretty mild. The bottom line is very few people actually work in isolation. And you put yourself around other people, 1% of decisions times 10 people, you're looking at 10 decisions, risky decisions every three minutes, 100 people. You know, we can all do the math. You have to a 1,000 decisions every three minutes if you're working in a large organization. But the question is, you know, how much risk can you afford? And here's the question. While many of these risky decisions may be guided by some process or procedure, many are not. And if you look at this picture, what decisions are being made that are outside the, the scope of planned processes and procedures, we don't know. And the question I would have to ask is, what is guiding the people making those decisions? And how aware are they of those decisions? Because the bottom line is, only 5 to 10% of the decisions you make are fully conscious. They're ones that you can remember, that you've slowed down and reasoned, and made a fully aware and conscious decision. So that's the risk factor. That's to give you a high-level overview of the intervention talk to you a little bit about how it's best implemented in an organization. Now, I stumbled over my words a little bit earlier. We have to remember, I'd like to emphasize that it's not just a workshop. This really is a transformative event. And to tell you the truth, if I were just to teach people about the tools and the processes of making these better risk-based decisions, it would probably, I could probably do it an hour and a half pretty quickly. But the bottom line is, knowledge or information without valuing it or the informed part of our influence chain. 
you need to have both. I have to know what to do and I have to value it. And the way I value it is by knowing that I have a gap. That gap is potentially fatal to me and others. And that I have a way to remedy or fill that gap. Now, the risk factor is designed for a comprehensive rollout uh, to a complete stratus of an organization. As you can imagine, it would be difficult to have a large organization and a small part of it making risk-based decisions using a different process than other people, especially if they end up working together on a team, right? So we always recommend that it, it may be a, a specific plant, but the whole plant has to do it, or um, or the whole organization. I'm going to give you a. I'm going to give you a. Uh, we're going to do a brief case study in a few minutes, and I'll give you an example of how um, how that works. Now, leadership buy-in is the key. Oh, I don't know. Did I go back? So, leadership buy-in is the key. We have ways that we uh, we're going to illustrate how uh, leadership can be actively engaged in the rollout of the risk factor. Now, this is a real important part here. The risk factor is not is an extension of, not a replacement of current safety efforts. In fact, at an organizational level, it's imperative that you do have processes and, and systems in place for safety. This is meant to take that to the next level. And also, we have the ability to customize. Um, it, and this is important. I'm going to show you in, in the case study how we did it for a particular organization. But customization, tying uh, previous safety initiatives to branding and visioning uh, around safety is critical and very easy to do in a customization. So here are the implementation guidelines. The first thing is that DSS, that's uh, DuPont Sustainable Solutions, we deploy to the stakeholders. Uh, we usually do this through um, a small select group that's making the decision about whether or not to use the risk factor. Then we apply the customization requests. The case study you'll see was, a, was an entire day sitting around with their safety people, going through every line of the facilitator's guide, rewriting, changing some images, and training the, our trainers specifically to emphasize and value the previous safety efforts of this organization. The next step is that it's deployed to the executive team. In the case example I'm going to show you in a few minutes, we deployed to the uh, chief operating officer, all the VPs, and the high-level managers. Uh, then we look for executive team endorsements. So this came in the, in the form of individual videos that we pushed out to the organization and to individuals. And uh, we also got them to endorse the, the um, risk factor initiative at the beginning of every train the trainer session. Then uh, it's best to deploy to the front line, and this might take the form of there we go uh, to to management and frontline supervisors, leaders, and champions. Again, each each rollout and deployment is different on how the organization plans to sustain the effort. And the last one is to deploy it out to the um, employees um, through a train-the-trainer model or, or we do our own trainings. So I'm trying to push through so we have time for questions. I'd like to uh, show you this uh, brief uh, case study 
Um, our client is was Norfolk Southern. You may have heard it's a railroad on the East Coast. They don't cross the Mississippi. They have roughly 22,000 miles of rail line and close to 30,000 employees. The interesting thing about Norfolk Southern is they were they received the E.H. Harriman Award for railroad safety 23 years in a row, and this is given to the safest railroad out there. But they still felt they could do more. They still felt their incident rates were too high. They still felt that they had problems with communicating uh, the safety message and the value for safety that they wanted to have pushed out to their whole organization. So they came to us. Uh, we did an assessment. Some of our solutions had to do around data processing, risk registers, et cetera. But the large part of the initiative really focused around the risk factor. The solution really came in four stages. I'm going to walk you through them briefly. And that was through branding, safety messaging, training, and more safety messaging. And let me just take a minute and show you what that looked like. So branding is the, uh, the attempt to take a large safety idea, bring it down to a narrative size level, and push it out to the organization, right? That really communicates that organization's commitment or feelings behind the safety message. Now, Norfolk Southern had a brand. Uh, it looked like this: it's, I am safety, I am service, I am Norfolk Southern. And this is something that they played. You know, if you went on YouTube and looked at some of their stuff, that's what it said. Or if you looked at uh, some of their own advertisements that they pushed out, this is what they said. The problem we said with this was our team determined that this message was too outward focused. It was focused, it seemed, on clients or on customers or on the community itself. So we decided to take it and create a brand that faced back at the employee that said, look, and this message is for you. So the message really is now, I am safety, I am service, I am coming home. The idea was to start to make safety personal to the individual, start to make the learnings and such around that connected with the concept of instead of saving 45 seconds taking this risk, I want to connect my behavior and my decision making with going home. So that brand was made, started to push it out, people started to see it, it showed up on bumper stickers, on this and that. It raised a little bit of interest. People were wondering what was coming next. So then we took the brand and we started to weave it in with some safety messaging, right? The safety messages were built around the concept of initially around their six tenets of safety. So we took a long-standing and established um, safety emphasis message that they embraced for a long time, and we wrapped I am coming home around it. This particular, now this, I'm not, I can't show you the video, but the video was actually around just a statement basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing, that no task is too important, no job too urgent, that we can't take the time to do it safely. And this one in particular was done by their chief operating officer. And then around that safety message, we wrapped the concept of I am coming home. Also, it was also introduced in their safety summit, an annual event where they actually unveiled all of this 
and they started talking about their new training initiative. That training initiative, of course, as, as you would probably expect given the nature of this presentation, was the risk factor. The risk factor was then rolled out again, as I said earlier, to the executive leadership team, management, we did champion training, supervision, train the trainer, observation, and field rollout, and I forgot one thing on there, is that we actually did coaching. The champions were coached over a year with how to continue to have conversations, how to implement, and basically talking about goals, milestones, and how well they were doing it. Now, after the rollout, we basically put in more messaging. Now, this was probably my favorite part. So I have a team here that does instructional design, they were then charged with looking at and working with Norfolk Southern on what the top 10 to 12 safety problems they had the year before. We created safety messages around each of those elements. One was like foot safety, one's fall protection, situational awareness, line of fire, uh, heat safety, all of these things. High level. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a term now being called micro-learning. We've been doing micro-learning for years. And it's like a two-minute video that says, hey, remember your training on sprains and strains, lift with your knees, take your time, et cetera. We wrapped it in with the branding of I am coming home and the safety messages around the risk factor. And you might remember was pause, process, and proceed. And this allowed us to visually show workers doing everyday tasks while pausing, processing, and proceeding. And this allowed us to reinforce that concept, make it concrete through visual, based upon their last year's incidences. And that was the rollout. So I've given you an idea of why, you know, we, we keep talking about risk and making people safe. What is it about? It's really about better decision making. We've covered the concept decision-making is often much more complicated than we think, right? We have conscious-level decision-making, various levels of subconscious decision-making, and we sprinkle in some emotions and experience, and it becomes very unpredictable, right? So the idea is to acknowledge the emotional drivers, control for them in our risk-reward reasoning, and then apply a very systematic and thorough method of risk assessment that will drive us to better decisions. And that's really what the risk factor journey is about. Um, and, and again, we, we covered some of the key, how we roll it out, and also um, a case study. Now, I'd like to thank you all for listening. And I, I know that you didn't have the, the ability to interrupt me, but I, I do appreciate the fact that I wasn't interrupted, except for the power surge. And um, I'm going to turn over for questions now, and I know that um, this is going to be handled by, by our hosts. So thank you very much for your time, and I'm happy to take your questions. Well, thank you, George. That was a great presentation, and really appreciate your insights and expertise and, and storytelling ability. I think you connected um, with what turned out to be a huge audience today um, that has asked a lot of questions already. So before we start the Q&A session, you know, I just want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey should be appearing on your screen. Um, your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. We do look at what you have to say. 
Uh, if you don't see the evaluation survey on your screen, please go ahead and turn off your pop-up blocker. Uh, you also can access the survey by clicking the survey button, which is near the lower right portion of your screen. And with that, we'll get to some questions. And, and as I said, we have a, a whole bunch, and anything that we don't get to will be forwarded along to George. Um, so let's start with the first question. Uh, George, how, how is this program different from behavior-based safety? So I, I like so it's funny because when you look at behavior-based safety, it's really hard to define, right? But when I look at behavior-based safety, I, I see a system of rules, processes, and procedures and consequences associated with them. Some organizations are very good at doing it, right? We have signs everywhere. We the people are very well trained and it's 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 constantly um, reinforced. But you know, when we look at the one slide where I I, I'm trying to remember the, the slide where it says that um, I, I forget what the slide says, but basically the bottom line is we can't anticipate everything that's going to happen to somebody on the job, and I think that kind of an assumption of behavior-based safety, fully fully integrated behavior-based safety systems, is that we can. Right? Is that if this happens, then do this. Here's the rule. Here's the process. Here's the procedure. What we want to do is we want to take people a step before that and say, let's just acknowledge some of the reasons why you might make a risk-based decision. Let's look at it from your perspective, specifically to you, and let's give you a tool that when there is not a behavior-based safety system protocol to follow, that you can make a better decision. Right? Now, I know this makes a lot of people nervous, right? because what are we doing? We're actually, to some extent, creating little independent risk assessors. right? But the bottom line is, is we have to do that. I just think that we're concerned. We have to be concerned. And, and to summarize the point, it's really this. We're going beyond behavior. We're focusing on decisions, decision making, Make pe making people more accurate and uh, better equipped decision makers. Good question, though. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, next question. You know, a lot of our audience members, some are from small companies, others are from huge international uh, companies. What, what size company is this program most appropriate for? Well, we can make it work for anybody. I really can. And you know, the larger companies, you tend to have more logistical problems. But you know, if you take an organization where people are um, having to make, take anybody who needs a higher level of risk awareness and ability to make a better decision, that person can make better risk-based decisions and the organization can be. It doesn't matter the size. We are a very agile delivery organization, can help guide and or help deliver this to any organization. Because, and you know why it works for any, any size organization? It's because we're really focusing on the individual. We really are, right? This is a system that empowers individuals. So whether I'm empowering five people through this or 30,000, which is the number at Norfolk Southern, um, it, it's, it's powerful for anybody. And then how, how important is it to have executive buy-in for this program? I think it's extremely important. It, it's a huge shift, right? So I see somebody's question on here that asks about like older workers and stuff like that, right? So I'm, I'm going to kind of combine the two, right? Mm -hmm. 
the concepts, the, the approach concept is, is, I think, a little easily, more easily accepted maybe by younger generation. When you have an older generation and, and the response might be, look, man, you get paid to come here to do what you're told, to do it safely, and that's, that's it, right? You might have a little difficulty with that. And that's why having a more senior leader with credibility help to communicate the message and to begin the initiative is critical. Um, we spent quite amount of time in, in, in the rollouts we've done with these quite, quite amount of time with uh, the C-suite and with the vice president level making videos that um, allow them to show when we look at that persuasive model to inform, inspire, and influence, it allows those leaders to demonstrate and illustrate all three of those points within the context of this initiative that's coming. When a leader can stand up and say, you know, I've been working for the railroad for 45 years. My family, my father worked for the railroad. That builds a level of credibility, right, which is an, influence, is, is an element of influence. And, you know, I really care about the people that I know here at Norfolk Southern. I know hundreds of people from et cetera, et cetera so we can build that. And I'll tell you, and, and we actually even train the first-line leaders and managers, actually all the way up, to communicate using that persuasion model. So if we can use the persuasive model, get it to the leadership. Leadership can be engaged and communicate their excitement, their endorsement of, of this new initiative. It becomes extremely powerful. The, so our, ne our next I question here is saying very important. No, yeah, absolutely. No, I th and, and that's important. I think our next question has to do, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the implementation process and the rollout. Mm -hmm. How do you sustain a program like this? What, what's the key to, to keeping it going once you've, once you've gone ahead and, you know, covered the implementation? So that's great, right? So we have coaching, which is a really nice model. So your champions or whatever level of leadership you are empowering, and giving the responsibility of sustaining this, you give that to them. There are some tools that are field-based tools that we expect supervisors to use to help teams discuss and implement risk. By the way, I didn't really talk much about that, but we call it the risk scale. And there are conversations that help us to identify and eliminate biases at the same time doing a systematic analysis of the risk. So these tools are out there. Those are used. And we suggest using a series of videos that illustrate using pause, process, and proceed in the completion of duties and functions of, of everyday work. You combine those three things along with the branding and messaging campaign, you can really keep this going. And to tell you the truth, I hate to say this, and the people are going to get mad at me, the people who sell those little risk scale cards. I would hope that in a year, I didn't see too many of those. Why? Because the conversation has become so innate in whatever job briefing that it just makes sense to say, hey, what do you think the risk is? What do you think the risk is? There's a difference. Why is there a difference? And then to me that's – and then what I would love is a year later somebody comes in and they just say, figure – you know, their perspective, a new person would be, they must have always done this because it makes so much sense. So yeah, there's your answer. Um, coaching? Branding and messaging, I follow up with video illustrations of 
people doing those tasks, and we are actually building that in a series of micro-learning right now that would help, um, and we've picked you know, like OSHA top um, incidences and things like that. We're actually putting out 40 this year that can also be purchased, and they help illustrate, pause, process, and proceed within the context of doing everyday tasks. That's a great question too, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for that answer. It's really helpful. Uh, we've got a few minutes to go here. Time for one or two more, I think. Uh, next question is, how do you balance the risk factor training with compliance of regulations? So that is a great question. It's complete acknowledgement that the compliance and regulations have to be done and usually have to be done first, right? Because if we're equipping somebody to make an independent risk-based decision, they have to know that this decision is outside the parameters of everything they've been trained to do. They have to be able to say that, right? We can't have somebody who's uh, you know, a fireman making his own risk-based decisions if he hasn't been trained as a fireman, right? So you've got to, you've got to get that first. And I will tell you that our, our, our work with Norfolk Southern, that was their big concern. They've done quite a bit of work with, with um, behavior-based safety. The railroad industry is very rule and regulation laden. And they wanted that. So it was acknowledged right up front, this is not a replacement. This is a combination. So people will not get the risk factor unless they've been through the onboarding procedure, they know their rules, regulations, and they're sufficiently trained to do the things every day they're supposed to do by the organization. Then the risk factor becomes a very good um, uh, next level extension. For those of you listening, we have something in Bradley called, called the Bradley Curve, right? Basically, what we call you know, that type of training and the behavior-based safety system, we, we put workers and organizations in what we call the dependent phase. Workers are dependent on the organization, the organization's training and safety system to be safe. The bad side of that is when they get hurt, who they blame? It's not my fault. I was dependent on you, right? The risk factor, once we've got these safety systems trained, is that next step. Now, how do I value safety? How do I independently assess the decision I'm about to make, not just at work, but also at home and in transit? So I, I hope that answers the question. It does, yeah, absolutely. And then I think we've got time for one more just real quick, you know, 20 seconds or less. Questioner says, this program sounds great. Uh, one of the things we see when injuries are happening is when employees are performing non-routine work. Do you use yeah. or do you think this program can be used in this manner? Yeah. <clears throat> That's a good short answer. <laughs> no, it is. Well, and, and I and I got to tell you something. My experience is actually that's I prefer that work environment because I think where that's where it's most valuable, right? We're doing work now with electrical supply company, you know, distribution, um, transmission, and generation, right? Those people are out in the middle of a storm, and we're having a heck of a storm here in the East Coast. You think about those people; they're going to be making independent decisions all. You know, as they're trying to get your lights back on, and they come up and they see a tree leaning upon a bunch of, a bunch of, uh, you know, wires. They're feeling pressure to get the lights back on. They're feeling pressure by their boss. They don't want to be known as the guy who has to always call the tree people, right? Mm -hmm. They're the ones that are going to have to make in real time, risk-based decisions based upon what they observe, right? With changing environment and changing variables all around them. And this is really what it's meant to help address. 
Well, I really appreciate it, George. Yeah, thank you, and thanks for all these great questions that everyone sent in. Um, We have run out of time. Uh, Do want everyone to know those unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers. Um, But thank you to everyone. Thanks to George. Thanks to DuPont and everyone who listened in to today's uh, webcast. And uh, thank you very much once again, and, and just have a great day. All right, goodbye, everybody.